Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening, and I'll ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week, we will discuss China and an update on Jimmy Lai's now postponed trial and the Kanye West anti-Semitism story. But first, I want to say I apologize for no show last week. Um... Uh, illness ripped through the Acton Institute and rendered us unable to do a program. So for those of you who uh, your entire week was thrown off by the lack of this podcast in your podcast feed, we are deeply sorry about that. Uh, But we're back and we're going to start in Ukraine with a story that uh, Dylan shared with us last week. The end of last week, a headline here from The New York Times, uh, Zelensky proposes preventing Orthodox churches affiliated with Moscow from operating in Ukraine. Uh, rather than me setting this up, Dylan, why don't I just go right to you uh, as yeah. um, uh, Orthodox? And uh, obviously, we've been discussing what has been going on in Ukraine. Uh, set up the story and why you find it so concerning. Uh, so, um, you know, it's it's no secret and I've I've certainly criticized uh, the Moscow Patriarchate, um, Patriarch Kirill of Moscow in particular, for their uh, rhetorical assistance uh, for Putin and uh, this war. Um, I don't think there are, there's instances which we also have highlighted of priests in Russia protesting. So it's not as simple as someone's a member of this church. They support the war. Um, in the Ukraine, um, about uh, 67% of the population uh, identify as Orthodox. Um, there are two Orthodox churches, uh, to, to simplify things, two Orthodox churches in the Ukraine. There's the Kiev Patriarchate, um, which Moscow does not recognize. It's a, a whole thing. It's a newer thing, but uh, it was recognized by Constantinople. Um, and then there is the Moscow Patriarchate. That's uh, So the Kiev Patriarchate is about 28% of people and about 13% identify with the Moscow Patriarchate. Uh, and there's about 23% who just don't specify. So they could be either. They just say they're Orthodox on surveys. Um, but it's it. there's at least some of those would also be. Uh, and it's I think something like half of the parishes. It's a lot of the churches in the country. Um, And to give some perspective, the Moscow Patriarchate is the largest patriarchate of the Orthodox Church um, by far. Um, So this is the hugest sub-branch of Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Um, And it makes up roughly a quarter to a half of the Orthodox Christians in Ukraine who make up the vast majority of religious people. In fact, only 71.7% of people in Ukraine say they believe in God which interestingly is lower than the number of people who identify with any given religion. Um, to put things in perspective, uh, Joseph Pierce wrote a great article, a great essay back in 2014 when all the, the fighting broke out in the Donbass originally, uh, relaying his experience in Northern Ireland uh, growing up and uh, as a young man declaring himself an atheist, thinking this would get him out of the religious violence there. And he, he met a gang in the street uh, and they said, hey, 
you Protestant or Catholic? Uh, and he thought, well, I got the perfect answer. You know, neither. I'm atheist. They said, okay, are you a Protestant atheist or a Catholic atheist? Because right? they, they had so politicized and militarized religious identity. Um, it's interesting how that phenomenon extends other places as well. So as I observed uh, the violence that happens in the city of Chicago, um, there's a long-held, I think, assumption by a number of people that you choose to join a gang if you're wow. in the city of Chicago, which is actually really not true. You're in one by virtue of the block that you were born yeah. on. And you can either choose to recognize that fact and operate accordingly and and basically decide to uh, link up with the other people who are in the gang that are in that gang because of the block that they were born on. Or you choose to not recognize it at your own peril because the other sides, the other cliques that are out there are not going to care that you don't want to affiliate with them. You're yeah. affiliated whether you want to or not. Right. So this is a good reference point for how complicated this sort of thing can be. Obviously, there, there's there been fighting in Ukraine um, in Donbass and Luhansk since 2014. Um, and in February of this year, Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, it has been messy throughout this period. Uh, I remember looking at both countries for years, uh, looking at uh, different different index, indices, uh, whether it's you know freedom of the press or economic freedom or freedom of religion. Um, and the short answer is, while it, maybe in the last decade we can say Ukraine has been trying to westernize, um, they both are terrible countries to live in. I don't know how, how to put that nicely, uh, but none of them rank well. Neither of them rank well. Um, and uh, there's some really questionable stuff on both sides. Uh, it's not a matter of propaganda. I don't support Russia invading Ukraine, um, but I also don't support things like the Ukrainian parliament in 2015 voting to suspend uh, uh, so, uh, um, human rights conventions in in the Donbass. So basically they just said, we don't care about, you know, killing children, women, torturing people, all that sort of stuff that, <laughs> that, that people usually adhere to even in war. Uh, very early on in this conflict, they vote. Now, I'm sure the Russian separatists were no better. Um, in fact, there's reports that they were no better. Same sort of thing. You want to dig into the, it doesn't take long to find stories of there being a big Nazi problem in the Ukraine. True. They, this Azov battalion, they are neo-Nazis. They exist uh, in Ukraine. There's also the, one of the largest pro-separatist groups in the Donbass, uh, so pro-Russia groups, are Nazis. Like, <laughs> there's Nazis on both sides. It's not you know, good Russia trying to denazify the Ukraine. It's, there's some Nazis they like and some Nazis they don't. Um, and it's just a mess. Uh, our, Which our media. Is a very, we'll get to that later. A very Kanye West. Take. Yeah. Well. Yeah. We'll get yeah. back. We'll get back to that. I'm sure. But but our our media tends to cover this uh, through a Cold War lens, which uh, we should expect to be dated, given that the Cold War technically ended 30 years ago, um, and and it was prob- perhaps a problematic lens at the time anyway. But it's definitely problematic now. Um, this is very messy. And what has happened is Zelensky. Um, this is not the first such troubling measure since this war began. He has basically nationalized all media. Uh, he has outlaw- outlawed all uh, pro-Russian political parties, which, again, might sound very understandable during a war. Um, but one of them held several seats, I had 30 or 40 seats in their parliament. Um, so that's a pretty large uh, representation uh, of their their politics. And if someone supported... Uh, separation and wanted to advocate that cause on peaceful grounds, politics would be the way to do it, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that all these people are good, whatever, but it is 
troubling that one of the few possible peaceful means uh, for negotiating this became impossible. Um, it was ruled illegal to be to be part of this party. They were disbanded, right? Um, so, I mean, it, it's complicated because you'd think, well, why would he want pro-Russian separatists, you know, organizing in his country? I get it. Like, I get it. But it's very complicated. And now he's proposing, well, not proposing, he did, um, outlawing the Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, so the Russian Orthodox Church, in Ukraine. Um, to give a sense of scale, that'd be like President Biden saying, Catholicism is now illegal in the United States, or Mormonism is now illegal in the United States, something which I think presidents have tried in the past, um, or Southern, the Southern Baptist Convention, illegal now. I mean, that is the, the scale at which, uh, as far as percentage of population we're talking here, um, it's huge. And these people are not Russian Orthodox Christians of the Moscow Patriarchate are not isolated to the East, where all the separatists are. They are spread all throughout Ukraine. Um, and I, you know, one thing that I immediately thought of and that, that I feel terrible about, um, I think Metropolitan Onufri of Kiev, of the Moscow Patriarchate, uh, had the most admirable, most Christian response to this entire crisis when it broke out. He condemned the attack and he called for peace uh, in a way that you did not see. You, know, you see Patriarch Kirill and some of the more uh, pro-Russian uh, you know, uh, bishops, uh, parroting Kremlin propaganda, but you also have some of these Kiev patriarchate uh, officials basically saying, rah, 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 let's go kill some Russians. And um, there was a voice of Christian peace who I guess is now illegal, <laughs> um, or he's at least in a very, very difficult position. And um, all that is to say, I, I think this is very troubling for anyone in the world who supports uh, human rights and freedom and dignity, uh, as we do here, uh, things like religious liberty uh, are the absolute bedrock of freedom for any society. If what people are rooting for in Ukraine, I understand, like I said, the media portrayal is complicated. The on-the-ground reality is even more complicated. But I see a lot of well-intentioned people saying, that's, you know, we got to support Ukraine. They're, they're representing democracy and Western values and all these sorts of things. I support those things, too. But it, we got to look at what's happening. We got to be honest about what's going on. And the most fundamental freedom has now been radically undermined by the president of the Ukraine, in Ukraine. How do we? Uh, let me just ask this as a general question, then Dan, feel free to jump in on on any of this. How do we then kind of make these interpretations, right? So if you read about um, the worst president in American history, Woodrow Wilson, um, Woodrow Wilson had an admiration for Abraham Lincoln, but he admired him for all of the things that we really in a, in a way should not admire him for. Abraham Lincoln did things during the Civil War, the suspension of habeas corpus, um, restrictions on, on media and publishing, things that uh, are bad. That we, and we should not hesitate to say are bad, uh, but in the name of a cause that uh, I would agree is right and just in the elimination of slavery and um, the holding the union together. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you look at Wilson, it's like he, he liked somebody who I think we would agree that is an admirable person in American history. But he liked the bad things he did for the reasons that, that, that you can imagine if you know much right. about Woodrow Wilson that he liked them. So – you look at what Zelensky is doing and some of the things that you have detailed there, and again, not good. Right. And yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. But it, I guess in my mind, it's, you know, despite all of those things, it's pretty easy to suss out to me good guys and bad guys in this 
fight here. I mean, one is invading the country of another, which is a pretty clear dividing line. That doesn't mean one has to support everything Zelensky is doing in reaction to that. But I I just I'm I'm curious in your mind, how do we calculate? Yeah. Work through these things in the same way that in an American history context, we have to work through the things that Abraham Lincoln did in the name of something that I think we would probably all agree was good. Well, I I mean, I think the categories of good guys and bad guys are just flawed and they're not helpful in this situation. I agree that that Russia is in the wrong to have <laughs> invaded Ukraine. Ukraine's in the right to defend themselves. All right, or but maybe that put doesn't. It this way. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Therefore, say we have some clear good guys and bad maybe guys it, here because we have we have a mess. It was maybe a mess rather than for years. Maybe rather than good guys and bad guys, we say a, a side that should win and a side that should lose. I. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, there's, it's hard to say depending on where. In the Donbass, he had about 50% support for the separatists. Now, it doesn't mean that they should win by whatever means necessary, but I don't know what, what does, what does a peaceful solution to that look like? Is it just Ukraine getting its way? That means half of the people um, are not very happy. Um, I don't know. Um, I, 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 my support, my thought uh, as a Christian, as an Orthodox Christian, is that the Christian uh, approach always has to be pro-peace above all. Um, and so I'm against war. I'm not for one side and against another side. I'm against war. I'm against violence. Um, and I think that is hard to keep in mind, but it's it's important for especially outsiders looking in what everyone wants, ever, especially all the people who did not choose this, which is most of the people involved is for the fighting to stop, is for peace. Um, so I think that's what, where our prayers should be, and that's where our focus should be. Um, and, I, and I especially don't like the good, by, good guy, bad guy framing because I think it leads to this sort of thing. I, I get it that in wartime, extreme measures are sometimes called for. Yes, you know, the example of Abraham Lincoln, although, frankly, there's there's freedom-loving people who would dispute the necessity of those things that, that oh, Lincoln I, did. I remember um, being at and, a— And perhaps uh, rightly so. I um, remember being at a dinner in Chicago probably 15 years ago now where the centerpiece of, of the evening was for a nonprofit organization. Uh, the centerpiece of the evening was a debate about the legacy of Abraham Lincoln yeah. with— um, I think it was Joe Morris was the one defending Lincoln, and Thomas DiLorenzo was the one uh, uh, indicting Lincoln's legacy. So, yes, it, it, yeah. it all of these things are— up for debate, right. um, and so the other the the problem is is that this this then feeds into what happened here. Basically, any member of the Russian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine is now being viewed as a de facto enemy combatant. Right? That that is to me just unfathomable. Again, it's it's like saying okay. I don't know, somebody attacks us and their leader happens to be Baptist or they have a strong Baptist church that's supporting them or whatever. And we say, okay, Southern Baptists, we can't trust them anymore. I mean, we did this in World War II. We said, Japanese, we can't trust you anymore. We put them all in internment camps. Uh, I think most people rightly look back and say, that was a terrible human rights violation. That was the wrong thing for us to do. Now, so far, no one has been carted off to camps. I certainly hope that does not happen in Ukraine. I see no reason currently to think it will. I don't want to at uh, all spread any rumors. Um, but we really need to to take a pause here and and recognize the seriousness of this measure and the possible implication implications that could come of this. This is where I'd like to jump in because I've been thinking through this story. There's a couple of 
sort of sets of intentions that could be behind something like this. It could be something as simple as a punitive action to the Russian Orthodox Church because Patriarch Kirill has been so keen in his advocacy of the Russian cause. This cause, this could be a sort of tit for tat response. Um, it could also be, as as you sort of insinuated there, that perhaps there's a view of um, these folks as being sort of a fifth column in the country, um, particularly when you talk about opposition parties being suppressed. Now, you know, naturally other institutions closely aligned with, uh, you know, the Russian heritage that all of Ukraine has in many ways. Um, this is a yeah. long, The irony here, though, is history. that in Ukraine, the Russian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate has not taken the Kremlin line. And that, yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the most disappointing things is I, I see, I, I don't see the evidence that would supposedly support such an extreme measure. E- even, even then I might oppose it, but, but even mm-hmm. so they, they've been admirable in their, their courage to stand up for peace and to stand against uh, even their own patriarch, even though they're canonically still abiding by those canons and recognizing him as their patriarch. Um, so, but yes, understood. The, the, the other thing is this could be constituent of a larger sort of Ukrainian nationalist project. Oh, definitely is. To affect not only the course of the conflict, but um, the place of Russian institutions, language, yeah. and culture in the future of the Ukraine. We've already yeah. seen Russian language. Uh, usage in many places subscribed. We've also we've seen uh, these political parties being suppressed. Is this is, could be a larger play for sort of the the religious uh, and uh, and sort of ethnic composition of Ukraine going forward? What what is it to be a Ukrainian? And do these sort of Russian ties in the future make you somewhat suspect as a Ukrainian, despite the long intertwined uh, history of both nations. Yeah, and the the history is. I mean, I, I could go on and on about Russian history, but um, you know, we there, there's a lot of lies being built upon truths, if that makes sense. You have the the Russian propaganda of this Ruski mir, this Russian world, right? Um, and then you have the Ukrainian line is Ukrainian nationalism. Um, well. Both things in reality are true. Historically, Ukraine and Kiev has had some independent existence um, from Moscow. On the other hand, it was very much Kiev and Ukrainian, um, especially bishops, who were instrumental in creating the Russian Empire. I mean, this, it's just in Russian, like that pan-Russian identity comes a lot from their project, uh, which they use the Russian Orthodox Church to do. And um, it's just complicated. And I, these are people who... Um, you know, you would think have so many similarities, although this is often the case. People who are the most similar seem to fight the most bitterly, but they have so many similarities, you think they should be good friends, right? At the very least, they should acknowledge a a real brotherhood and a real right to separate existence, um, to independence and and sovereignty. Um, And it seems that, that people are not able to hold those two things in tension. They're either either acknowledging the one and using that to support violence or acknowledging the other and using that to support violence. And I think peace, unfortunately, as as is typically the case, is a more complicated and nuanced path. Uh, It's hard to turn that into propaganda and populism. 
the connection that I want to draw here is admittedly different in a lot of ways is, you know, all analogies uh, fail because they're analogies. But one of the things this has made me think of is just how bad of an in, uh, instinct it is in some people to want to determine, particularly in the context of religion, which ones are legitimate and which ones are not. And I think you see this most commonly in the United States here. Uh, with regard to Scientology, which is something that I do not have any respect for whatsoever um, and do not think is actually a religion. But you get these questions about it every once in a while, and you, you brought up Mormonism as well, Dylan, which you, you can find historical examples of, of all of this. Um, People, when you hear some of the horrible stories about what Scientology has done to people, there are a couple different documentaries out there. Um, it was Leah Remini has had a TV show about her kind of recovery from being a Scientologist. There was an HBO documentary a number of years ago called Going Clear. Um, I, I'd commend that one to people if you want a understanding of just how uh, bizarre and messed up and truly awful in many ways Scientology is and is – in reaction to that, you get a lot of people who will call for Scientology to no longer be recognized as a legitimate religion in the United States, mostly with the um, purpose of wanting to remove the tax benefits um, that they will get from being considered a religion. That It's a very dangerous road down which to go, wanting to empower the state to be the one deciding what a group of people who get together and say that they have uh, – their beliefs are a religion is or is not a religion. Um, and certainly you should be open to the idea that that is going to create abuses of whatever protections are granted to a religious faith. But it's better to have those protections for an organization like Scientology than to open the door for their removal, kind of like we're seeing here in Ukraine. But certainly you go back through the history of the United States and the oppression of plenty of different religious uh, religious sects. Um, Mormonism is one example. I'm from Illinois where Mormons were driven out of and many murdered on the way uh, on their way west to Utah. Certainly there's a history of uh, discrimination against Catholics. Um, it's one of the reasons we get the public school system. Uh, you know, it is you don't want to open that door. So I, I understand people's reaction to something like Scientology. It is understandable, but it is still a bad idea. And this is why the value of tolerating things that we don't like like this is such an important one. And I think it is what one of the fears I have is I think we see the understanding of that slipping, um, not just in places like Ukraine, which, as you've pointed out, has its own troubled history and confused history, as, as you've elucidated as well, but in the Western world and in places like the United States, where it has been such a important instantiated value. And I think we're, we're seeing the erosion of that. Um, that worries me for the future if people are not going to resume the recognition that these are important protections, even, and again, they exist to protect the things that you don't like, right? right. The purpose of having protections right. for freedom of speech, and we, we've not discussed what's going on with Twitter yet, and maybe we'll do that next week. We may know more about these Twitter files and all of that. Um, the importance of having protections legally and culturally for freedom of speech is to protect things that you do not like because protections for only things that you like are really unimportant and not necessary. Right, right. Um, so I, I guess what I struggle with is the – I'm all for trying to prop up Ukraine 
because they do have uh, certainly in Zelensky and I believe in his predecessor, they had they had this turn towards the West. They wanted to join NATO. It's a very pro-Western turn, and I think a very positive one in the sense to the extent that they wanted things like recognition of you know basic human rights, rule of law, um, freedom of religion, uh, political freedom, and economic freedom. Well. Uh, and freedom of the press, you know, all these these basic things that we take for granted. I don't know what everyone means by Western values, but that's what I think of when I think of Western values. Uh, well, we can start crossing those things off the list, unfortunately, this year uh, in Ukraine to the point where at what extent to what at what point is Ukraine simply a bearer of Western values in name only um, rather than doing the hard work of trying to be different um, to to fight for their sovereignty um, and also to uphold these things, these principles they claim that sovereignty to stand for. There's also a reality that America has a very, very robust understanding of religious liberty and has incorporated uh, what we would, what many would call new religious movements, what other people would call cults. There might be differences between those, but it's also a very common thing in a European context for if your religion isn't 500 years old, it's immediately under suspicion. This is not only true of Scientology, uh, which does not is not afforded the sort of protections it has in the United States and places like Germany, but this is also true of, of institutions like the Salvation Army, mm-hmm. which uh, I think is still officially suppressed in Russia. Yeah, I think so. Um, and, and, I believe at one time they were identified as foreign combatants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the army part. Really not that kind of army. <laughs> Either willfully or unwill, you yeah. know, unintentionally being misunderstood. And there's also a very real history of groups starting out as very marginal new religious movements with some cult-like features that then transition into what everyone today would appreciate as fairly normal standard religions. And one of the reasons that the United States has been a particularly successful place for that to happen is the harassment of these groups is fairly minimal, which makes it much more harder for them to stay insular. Um, If they are in a political environment where they have free exercise, where they're allowed to exist in the world, where they're allowed to publicly be yeah. What they say. I mean, to, to add on this, you know, one thing that I think can help bring some clarity to the analysis. So uh, if the Church of Scientology ends up in a scandal where they have embezzled money, they will run afoul of all sorts of anti-embezzling laws <laughs> and they can still be brought to justice without having to be banned as a religion. It's ridiculous as it is if you know anything about its origins. Um, so look at look at Ukraine once again. I'm fine with laws against aiding the enemy, right? <laughs> right? That's understandable in time of war. Um, you can have all sorts, you know, aiding and abetting foreign uh, invaders can be illegal in the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine can still be legal. Uh, aiding and abetting foreign invaders can be illegal and Pro-Russian separatist political parties could still be legal. Aiding and abetting foreign invaders could be illegal. And media that talks about some of these other positions could still be legal. Um, There are lines that are capable of being drawn um, that suss out what the problem is 
without having to do away with fundamental institutions of a free society. Let's move to our second topic for today, which is that we have seen over the last couple of weeks these protests that have sprung up in China. Um, Our own President Emeritus, uh, Father Robert Sirico, had a piece in Fox News last week that we'll put in the show notes, making the piece, uh, making the case that these kind of things can start over something specific like COVID policy or in the case of the Arab Spring, you know, the harassment of a fruit vendor. they could also turn into being about so much more than just that one individual policy. And I, I think we're seeing that here in the case of China and the protests that are starting about COVID. But um, I think underlying it, there is, as Father Robert points out in his piece, you know, that tapestry of human freedoms that makes up real human freedom, the individual and some freedom of religion being one of them, like we've been talking about in this program up to this point. Uh, and simultaneously going on with that, another thing that we've been following closely here at the Acton Institute is uh, the trial in Hong Kong of Jimmy Lai on national security law uh, alleged violations. Um, to give people an update on that story, that trial was supposed to start on December 1st. Uh, it has been delayed. Jimmy had been granted permission to be represented by a UK barrister, a a human rights attorney named Tim Owen. Uh, That decision was appealed within Hong Kong's own justice system, and it was going to be permitted. And then Hong Kong's government uh, appealed it, essentially asked for clarification from Beijing as to whether or not this is something that can be allowed. Uh, The trial was postponed till December 13th. Um, I feel pretty confident personally projecting that it's not going to start on December 13th. This is something that is going to be dragged out for uh, for a while now. And I think we can probably assume if this is being, if Beijing is being asked for a clarification, I think we know what will be clarified uh, on the other end of it. So I will just throw open to anybody uh, any part of this, um, maybe particularly starting with the nature of these protests in China. And, and we should note too, protests do happen in China. Um, this does seem to be of a different characteristic than the kind of protests that normally happen there. And, you know, it does, I think, uh, almost by necessity, draw some comparisons to Tiananmen Square. And you saw, how, of course, how Tiananmen ended. Um, On on one hand, you know, if that's what this is barreling towards, this is going to be yet another just moral atrocity that the Chinese uh, Communist Party will commit against its own citizens. On the other hand, the suppression that we know of the Tiananmen story that happens in China. I mean, we had a gentleman at Acton University uh, earlier this year, uh, Feng Shuo, who was a student protest organizer at Tiananmen Square, um, was the number five most wanted man in China at one point in time, spent a year in a Chinese prison before it was international pressure that led to him and a lot of the other student protest organizers being released and eventually getting out of China and, and going elsewhere. And I asked him about what is the knowledge at, at all about Tiananmen Square and is more or less non-existent. Like even the propaganda that China had put out shortly after about the true story of Tiananmen Square, even the propaganda isn't talked about anymore. It just does not exist. So in a way, I find it encouraging to see that that spirit that is animating that kind of protest that led to Tiananmen Square, that is animating the kind of protest that we are seeing right now in China, just does exist even without the knowledge of this thing that happened in 1989. Uh, But I'll throw it open to either of you for any thoughts on this. 
I mean, the interesting thing is that this is geographically distributed. As, as was the protest. We talk about Tiananmen Square, mm-hmm. but these were protests that were happening all over China as well. Yeah. And um, it seems to be the the organization, um, there was a recent, uh, Apple recently updated their operating system uh, in response to concerns from the Chinese government because people were coordinating using some sort of functionality available in the iPhone. So there is... Um, a tremendous amount of ingenuity here. It's also extremely challenging to know just how widespread these protests are. We know they're widespread, but how widespread, how persistent because of how much Western media is suppressed in China. So it's encouraging to see these sorts of things. I think I think the delay in Jimmy Lai's trial was probably related in part. The nervousness of the Hong Kong government reaching out for these appeals because he is another symbol of resistance to this regime. And we can get into a little more about, about sort of the underlying causes of that. But I think um, the fact that this is – widespread is being coordinated in new ways and uh, that, you know, we have a a high profile trial such as Jimmy Lai's being delayed in the context of these uh, protests uh, is uh, encouraging to folks who love freedom. Yeah. I mean, I, I have more hope for China, I think, because of Hong Kong compared to, say, Iran, which we talked about. Uh, a few weeks ago, and I'm sure protests are still ongoing there um, because there's at least one beacon of the institutions you need for a free society. I think there's there's an idealism, um, even uh, unfortunately in the American mind, of all you need is is a protest and a revolution, and then you have a free society, and that that's not how it worked. We we had free societies, um, and then we protested uh, the actions of Parliament and the King, and we fought for our independence. Right that that was the American Revolution. We had constitutions, state constitutions. We had in in charters and things like you know we had rule of law. We had. The freest press, the most free, free freedom of religion, all these sorts of freedoms were already there in the United States, and then we gained our independence. Um, One need only look at the outcome, eventual outcome of the aforementioned Arab Spring to see yes. that these things can yes. start with lofty aspirations and protests against authoritarian regimes, and still end up at the end with just different authoritarian regimes, yep. uh, rather than with a kind of Western democracy um, and people choosing their own yes. way of being governed. And similarly, um, you know, any attempts by the West and the United States to do, you know, state building or regime change, you know, pro-democracy sort of attempts, especially in the Middle East, have all failed um, for the most part. And it's it's because they, they you need more than well, that. I don't think you could say you a... can't you can't just open elections uh, in a place where there is no tradition of freedom and tolerance and respect, especially again, as you mentioned in the previous segment, for people you don't like and don't care. You know, um, you got to have that kind of freedom. I think you can make um, though a colorable argument that, and we don't need to relitigate the, um, the the lead up to and the decision to engage in the Iraq War, sure. but that you know, the 
it, again, far from a perfect country, but a um, the state of the country now much better than it was under Saddam Hussein's rule. Now, that this is not an argument to say that that justifies what was done to bring it to this current state. There's plenty of that. Again, I don't want sure. to litigate it. Um, but it, it's, it is at least a colorable argument that that is a it, – it worked out better than I think the perception that a lot of people have about it. Uh, is and and one of the and one of the examples too is you know you people talk about the important elect you know at, when you have these kinds of changes the important election is not the first one it's right. the second one sure is to have a second one that is also Peaceful at least transfer of power freer yeah, and fairer than mm-hmm. you know the ninety nine percent for Saddam Hussein that uh, they had because they had elections quote unquote sure. um, but I think there's a, at least enough of a track record that we can look at the country of Iraq right now and say that it is not uh, it is not certainly the fate that it has befallen it is not uh, the fate that has befallen say Afghanistan in the attempt to try to liberalize that country there's also the the observation that all of these things can be improved on the margins. Yeah. What would be a victory for these protests is for civic life in China and Hong Kong to look much more like it did 10 years ago than it is today. That would be an unqualified victory for everyone concerned. Yeah. Um, and that's that's very important. And that is something that is completely within the power of authoritarian regimes when they feel threatened. When we mentioned Iran, they've recently announced that they are folding the morality police, the mm-hmm. the uh, the uh, the uh, uh, police division that was responsible for the death that was sort of the catalyst of this protest. So we're not living today in an Iran yeah. in which you know there are free and fair elections, universally recognized human rights. But we are living in an Iran today that at least one apparatus of state repression that existed a year ago is now being wound down. I'm sure I've made this point before, but it's one that stuck with me from uh, one of uh, American Enterprise Institute's China experts, Oriana Schuyler Mastro, uh, who I heard make the point that uh, it would be helpful if Americans particularly, but probably people in in other parts of the Western world, understood that – reform and change in a country like China will probably look dramatically different than what we would just imagine in our minds it looking like. You know, the idea of the CCP either collapsing or that there is some kind of a political competitor to the CCP. Her point was it's not that it's impossible for there to be some form of political competition with the current regime in China. It's that it's most likely to come from inter-party competition than it is from something competing against the CCP. And and her reasoning for that being is, you know, despite all that we know and can see in uh, is manifested in these protests that people do have their problems with the regime in China, uh, from the point of view, again, this is her argument, of the Chinese people, what the CCP has done is guaranteed a kind of stability in that country. When If one goes and looks at the history of China, the recent history of China, prior to uh, the establishment of the Chinese Communist Party and it becoming communist China, um, pretty tumultuous. So the 
desire of people to rip away entirely from what has delivered at minimum stability may not be that huge, but a desire for some kind of a change in the orientation and the nature and the operation of that regime is the kind of thing that we might see. And I think it's an important point for people to to think about that just because it is not going to manifest in the kind of, you know, liberal democracy that it would be wonderful if it did. Uh, I, I have no hesitation about saying that. I think it would be wonderful if it did. But it, it is unlikely to, but that, to your point, Dan, that does not mean things cannot be marginally improved. It just may not be in the kind of ways that people expect it to be if they're just thinking about it quickly. To me, this this gets back to the importance of Jimmy Lai and his trial as well in Hong Kong. Um, in as much as I think you're right, I think in the short term, it's probably you know, the best people can hope for is marginal change. Um, but there is a question of, you know, these the idea of one nation, two systems has been breaking down rapidly. Um, it started almost instantly yes, after the handover right. from a, the Brits to really the Chinese. Especially really since the, the um, was the umbrella protests. Um, but, you know, um, so really in recent years and, and with, with uh, the attack on Apple Daily and Jimmy Lai and free speech there um, and freedom of assembly, all these basic freedoms we take for granted, they have them all. Uh, there's a Chinese example of this uh, integrated to some extent within China. Um, that is a resource the whole country could draw from um, if things go a certain way. Now, I, I, I would echo your skepticism about things going any other way than than what uh, you know a cynic might expect when there are appeals to Beijing and all of that. Um, but there is this example. There are Chinese people who have lived their whole lives with the freedoms that we love and take for granted, um, who are in this nation, who might someday get a voice, and we should hope and pray that they do, uh, to say things can be different. We know things can be different. It's not just a matter of, oh, this is, this is for white Westerners or something like that. This is these are we're we're talking about human rights. We're talking about basic human dignity and the institutions that flow from them. And yes, they might look different in a specifically uh, Chinese cultural context, but they still have to have that that basic respect for human dignity and the rule of law that's fundamental to all of these things. I, I chuckle too a little at your uh, your point about you know just the most you can hope for is marginal improvements because you know even in kind of an American political context where essentially my own personal politics has has landed is I, I sympathize a lot with the first generation neoconservatives who are essentially ameliorists. My goal is to make things slightly less bad over time. I really don't have higher aspirations than that. In part because the Attempts at radical change often turn out really, really poorly. It is, you know, it is very difficult to build good things, and it is uh, dangerously easy to destroy good things. So, I, I think that that is a. I encourage people to um, kind of meditate on that point uh, about the, the danger involved in radical changes that happen very quickly, and how we should think about even within our own American context, change to things that we don't like in this country. Well, and those marginal. Changes- changes can have exponential returns. And we saw that in the late 80s, early 1990s in both China and India, where tens of millions of people, these were not, you know, these were both, you know, India was a much more politically free country, but it is a very, you know, the Nehruvian model looked to the Soviet Union as a sort of state socialism is the way to industrialize. And 
when India under under Prime Minister Rao started to move away from that, when China started to move away from that in Deng Xiaoping, and they did not embrace wholly Western style markets. These were very. They started out as very small changes, but those very small changes empowered people to create entrepreneurial classes that were really dynamic, that generated a tremendous amount of wealth and well-being for people in those societies. Um, Both those reform efforts have since been frustrated in various ways, but uh, the returns for for them were incredible, and both societies are still enjoying many of the returns for them. And they have those examples internal to their own history now of that sort of liberalization translating into a sort of national success stories and uh, increased well-being for uh, their most vulnerable citizens. Let's move to our final topic and come back to a uh, a point that Dylan unintentionally hinted at with our third topic of um, uh, good Nazis and bad Nazis, which is uh, a point that one Kanye West desired to make um, and and even to the point of saying, you know, the uh, terrible line that we've heard from other people before that, you know, Hitler had some good ideas, right? <laughs> uh, I, one, I think it's abundantly a couple points that we should make at, at the outset here. Um, one, Kanye West largely has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, he is, this is a relevant story in I think in a large part because this is a man who has been a cultural fixture in the United States for really the last 20 years. And we we are seeing before our eyes just the absolute public collapse of a of a person, um, which is sad. And I think we should recognize it as being sad. And I'm I'm not a I'm not a doctor of any kind. I don't even play one on uh, on a podcast, so I'm not going to try to figure out whether or not there are mental health issues at play here. But certainly a possibility, and um, in, in a way, you almost kind of hope that that's the case, because the alternative is that we are seeing one of the you know, biggest cultural fixtures in America of the last 20 years and in the world who is descended into just an absolutely loathsome form of anti-Semitism. Um, and we're seeing it, – it, it's now also bubbled up in different places as well. Like, so you know, Kanye starts this and you hear from people like Kyrie Irving um, who echo some of the similar sentiments about uh, Jewish people. Uh, so it is it is alarming from that point of view. I don't think we should oversell it in the way that some people often do in cir- circumstances like this to think that Kanye West is putting people in danger. What he's doing is bad. I don't know that that's the case, that he's yeah. actually endangering anybody with this rhetoric. But it is a rather sad episode, and it is always sad to see the specter of anti-Semitism raised like this because I mean, it's the world's probably oldest – hatred and it's disgusting and should be rejected when we see it. So uh, there's a few points I'd like to make. One is uh, Rachel Ferguson, uh, research uh, affiliate uh, here at Acton uh, for Acton, uh, wrote a great uh, article, I think two weeks ago, on anti-Semitism specifically within the black community, because something that's not well understood uh, by outsiders. Uh, She is an outsider, but she happens to have a really informed uh, take on that. So I think that's worth sharing and putting in the show notes um, to kind of get some clarity. Um, I think we also should, uh, to some degree, uh, distinguish between 
Kanye and Kiri Irving. Uh, maybe Dan can talk more about that. My understanding is Kiri watched some documentary, shared a link to it. It's got some messed up ideas, um, uh, but it, he's not out there like Kanye saying the Nazis had some good ideas and I like Hitler and terrible stuff like that. Um, Kanye West uh, has it, admitted to being bipolar. Uh, I think it's, it's public knowledge. It's something I believe one didn't, didn't he have an album that was just uh, bipolar. Being bipolar is, feels great. <laughs> I mean, I can't remember the exact title, but it was this very like cynical, like you know really bearing his his heart of how hard it is uh living with that um it's something that back when he was married uh, you know there were interviews with him and kim kardashian about how they tried to manage that um but there are plenty of bipolar people in the united states who do not like hitler this this needs to be stated all right he he has mental health issues those are real he probably is not being medicated for them, but people with mental health issues are no more likely <laughs> to be anti-Semitic, uh, to like Hitler, to spread this kind of stuff around. Now, some of them might embrace ideas disconnected with reality. That's part of the nature of mental illness, um, that it's something that gets in the way of you living a normal life, um, uh, normal just being whatever is functional in your given society. Um, so sure, but a lot of that is generally anxiety. It's things like low self-esteem or self-doubt or, or erratic behavior that leads to you losing jobs and being, unable, you know, that kind of stuff. Not, hey, you know what I just got done reading? Mein Kampf, some really great ideas in there, right? That, that, that's a whole different level. Conversely, there are people with no, uh, no, you know, recognizable mental health issues who have these terrible opinions. Um, so I want to, I want to disentangle that from the conversation. I do think we should, we should absolutely feel uh, sympathy towards anyone, including Kanye West, who are struggling with mental illness. But I don't think that's an excuse in any way. Um, I look at Kanye in part as a contrarian. Um, you know, he's wearing the red hat. Uh, for Trump uh, five years ago, uh, he just he kind of when everyone zigs, he zags. Yeah, and unfortunately, he is now zagged into anti-Semitism, which is a terrible, despicable ideology. I will put um, this uh, link to this podcast episode in the show notes. But uh, Eli Lake, who has a, a really good podcast that I encourage people to check out, had one on uh, the history of punk rock with Michael Moynihan from Vice News, and I think it was Moynihan who made the point in there that the only punk rock individual that I can think of right now is Kanye West. <laughs> um, and this was, of course, before this. This was yeah. months ago, before this current episode. Um, but the the MAGA hat is the perfect example of that. It is the punk rock move. Um, right. with everybody, it is the thing that you can't do, and you're going to say, "Okay, I'm going to do the thing that everybody says that I can't do." That is a punk rock move. So I think you 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 make a very good point about that contrarian kind of punk rock nature of him. But that, again, no excuse for the kind of things that right. he is currently uh, views he's currently expressing. Yeah, and this is this is. It brings up a larger question of uh, free speech, hate speech, that sort of thing. You know, where do we draw the line? On the one hand, I mean, I think he's free to completely ruin his entire career, <laughs> right? Um, but there is a difference between, uh, you know, purposefully violating propriety for the sake of being punk, punk rock and embracing uh, genuinely monstrous ideologies and propagating that. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think he's very effective at that. I don't, you know, but I I don't think it's something we should take lightly. Even when we look at someone, we say, "Oh, this this guy is ridiculous. He's wearing like a ski mask on Alex Jones, and you know, whatever." Like, I'm 
pretty sure every anti-Semite ever has looked ridiculous. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, uh, which I've been trying to get onto this podcast for a while unsuccessfully, uh, and I'm going to have to paraphrase it, but it comes from Jean-Paul Sartre. He wrote a book called Anti-Semite and Jew, or it's also sometimes referred to as this portrait of an anti-Semite. Um, John Paul Sartre had a lot of problems. He was an atheist and a communist, uh, an existentialist, uh, but he was not an anti-Semite. And in fact, he was he was very critical of it. And this book uh, is almost like a, a long troll of anti-Semitism. Uh, but at one point, he gets into this this pattern of psychology that is not limited to anti-Semitism. You can find it among just certain people, especially on social media. Um, he talks about how uh, the anti-Semite uh, doesn't believe in words. Um, and notably, Kanye West, in his book, has uh, declared himself a proud non-reader of books. <laughs> um, he doesn't believe in words, and so he has the right to play. He gets in arguments with people, um, and he gets to the point where he gets his interlocutor to say something ridiculous, and it doesn't matter what evidence is thrown at him, because at some point he'll just say, you know, I think the time for argument has passed. Let's just change the subject. And he, he's just very kind of uh, elusive and and um, is saying things in order to provoke a response. Not necessarily, and that's not to say that the anti-Semite doesn't have terrible opinions, um, but he knows that the the reasoning behind a lot of them is completely made up and ridiculous. Um, and he's simply just saying what he will to provoke the response he wants from other people and to bring them down to their level. Um, and it is a reminder that I think the best thing that can be done is not necessarily, although sometimes it's required, but not necessarily for any government to step in and restrict people's speech. But I think private uh, businesses and media outlets certainly have uh, at least an opportunity, if not a duty, uh, to do this sort of thing. They can get us to, we can discuss Twitter and what, what their policy should be there, a privately owned company. They're not, as, as much as people want them to be, a public utility. Um, and... They have every right to say what they want to allow on their platform and what they don't. Um, and that's something that, that I think should be talked about and considered. And I think that's something that if you really want to deal with this sort of person, again, this is not limited to anti-Semitism. It's kind of a, a habit of mind or speech. Um, the best thing you can do is not respond. Uh, maybe it's not don't give them a platform, but just don't give them a response. Don't amplify their voice. Uh, you know, I, you see this, Twitter is the worst of this, the absolute worst of this. Every time someone says something terrible, I find out about it because it starts trending because a million people are talking about how terrible it is instead of just not talking about it. Kanye West is now off of Twitter once more. Um, yeah. <laughs> so case in point. A case in point. Um, I think when you look at, and Rachel's article is excellent, and I, I would commend that as well as Dylan did, to look at sort of um, anti-Semitism lives in many different places, and it takes on many different forms. And one of the places it lives is in the African-American community. Um, it doesn't only live there, but it does live there. Um, and... It is something that, you know, when I look at common threads between Kyrie Irving and Kanye West, they are, are, two, are two men who are gifted with immense talents in very particular areas, who have extremely inflated senses of themselves uh, and their uh, ability to discern things and do things not only within those areas, but outside of those areas. Um, and 
there is, I think, a common thread of resentment, and there's different reasons for that in both of their lives. Um, and I think, you know, you know, anti-Semitism is a comforting conspiracy theory in which you can sort of marinate in your own resentment, and you can blame others in a literal international conspiracy that has brought you to where you are now or where you fear you'll be or um and i it's extremely self-destructive and it is a vicious cycle that draws people further and further away from reality further and further away from their own problems and uh it can be tremendously uh, isolated and alienated. And that's sort of the point as well, is this is a way of acting out. This is a way of exercising a sort of defiance of devaluing, dismissing others in your life, uh, which we've seen in, in both in both these cases. And it's very, very sad. And um, while they're not isolated incidences, I don't think, I, I think, I think we have this, very coincidental in a lot of ways that this is all coming out. I mean, this is something that's a perennial problem. Um, I don't think it's more acute um, than it was six months ago, despite the fact that it's in the news a lot more. Uh, but um, it's certainly something to, on the one hand, you know, It's good to keep in mind that there are these sort of pernicious lies in the world that degrade and destroy even the individuals that battle in them. On the other hand, uh, this is a horrific car wreck, and it's wrong to gawk and to draw too much attention to these things, to fixate too much on them uh, as a spectacle plays into that sort of carnivalesque atmosphere that the anti-Semite seeks to seeks yeah. out. Um, so it's a very, it's a, it's a very delicate balance between, okay, how do you recognize these things? Use these things as a catalyst to understand more fully, but then move on and don't encourage this sort of patterns of thought and, ways of being in the world that are fueled by resentment and despair. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, we thank you for that, but ask you to look in the show notes where you will find a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.